You are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. This is episode number 11 in the series. Today's episode is titled Demodocus and the Phaeacians. So welcome back, folks, to episode number 11 of Odyssey, the podcast, an episode I am choosing to title Demodocus and the Phaeacians. So if you will recall, we had left our boy Odysseus sound asleep in the Phaeacian palace, and Odysseus was dreaming of the promise of hospitality, and if he wanted, a ship home to the land of Ithaca the very next day, or alternately, if he preferred, a new bride, the princess Nausicaa. And as you know, King Alcinous had proposed the marriage, and 15-year-old Nausicaa appeared to be pretty keen on it herself, too. So, our story now picks up on the morning of day two, when Odysseus gets out of bed after his good night's sleep. Now, folks, King Alcinous obviously had big plans for the day ahead. And essentially, the heart of his plan was to celebrate, to feast, and to entertain this wonderful stranger guest who had washed up on the shores of their island. And so, first thing in the morning, to ensure an appropriate celebration and banquet and festivities to follow, King Alcinous had sent his heralds throughout the entire city, proclaiming a full day of special events in honor of the guest. There were going to be banquets, there were going to be athletic games, and the entire thing was going to be graced by the services of a professional storyteller. Well, the heralds spread out throughout the city, proclaiming the good news, and Athena, having fun with disguises, once again did her very best to help out her boy Odysseus with a little bit of advanced promotional work by getting the greatly wealthy and incredibly enthusiastic Phaeacian nobility crowd whipped into a whole lather of enthusiasm for this exciting new wonderful stranger guest. So Athena went charging through the town, proclaiming in a particularly loud heraldic voice the following. My lords, come to the meeting place to learn about the visitor to our great king's home. The man... He looks like an immortal god. Well, Athena's proclamations did their trick, and before long, the entire cream of the Phaeacian nobility was assembled in the royal palace, waiting for the stranger guest to be introduced by the good King Alcinous. And then, ladies and gentlemen, the morning's feast began in earnest. And, if you'll permit me an aside... It is going to be rather difficult, all of these Homeric feasts over the next few hours, because inside of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, well, the feasting seems to rather blend into a non-stop blur. Uh, You sometimes wonder if these people ever stopped their feasting long enough to digest. 
But all feasts inside of Homer, of course, involved massive slaughters and then the subsequent barbecuing of huge quantities of animal protein. And no Homeric account of any epic meal ever begins as follows. And so they gathered in the great hall for a salad, some olives, and a small slice of cheese. And this feast, this morning, more of a brunch than a feast given the time of day, well, it was so large and so substantial and so epically barbecuey that Alcinous had to, quote, slaughter 12 sheep, 8 boars, and 2 cows in order to feed his guests. Well, the only other thing you need to know about feasts before we get back to our story is that even back in Homer's day, Animal protein was very expensive and in very short supply. So when Homer tells us about these magnificent carnivorous dreams, well, they were, back in the Bronze Age, strictly only dreams for the audience. Most folks, when they got up in the morning, had a small salad, some olives, and possibly a small slice of cheese. But eventually, the guests at the breakfast brunch feast had had enough to eat and drink, and then they were ready to settle in with a good mug of early morning wine and wait for the featured entertainment, the famed storyteller, Demodocus himself, to grace the stage in the Great Hall. Now, folks, we don't know very much about Demodocus, the famous storyteller who shows up inside of Homer's Odyssey. And whether he was a traveling storyteller on tour who just by happy coincidence happened to be in the land of the Phaeacians on the very day when Odysseus was in town, or on the other hand, whether the Phaeacians were so ridiculously rich that they had Demodocus on permanent contract, if you will, well, we will never really know. All we know is that everybody in the Phaeacian audience and our omniscient narrator Homer himself declares that Demodocus was, by far and away, the best storyteller to ever give an account of Greek epic. And the only other thing we know about Demodocus? He was blind. As Homer puts it, The muse loved Demodocus above all others, granting him both good and evil. She stripped him of his sight, but gave him the gift of sweet song. And so Demodocus was led into the banquet hall, set up in a comfortable chair, provided with a side table replete with fresh bread and good wine, and his lyre was hung on a convenient peg within his reach. And then the storyteller Demodocus, comfortably in place, while the great hall fell into an appropriate anticipatory silence, and Demodocus launched into his story. Now, folks, the story that Demodocus told was a familiar tale, a story so famous, in fact, that in Homer's words, quote, It was a story whose fame had spread over the entire world so far as the heavens. Now, in specifics, the story involved a bitter quarrel, a quarrel that had happened between Achilles and Odysseus way, way, way back years earlier, during the Trojan War. Now, folks, as the Phaeacian audience listened to Demodocus sing this story, as far as they were concerned, and as far as Demodocus was concerned, of course, 
the story was recounting the tale of two long-dead Greek heroes who had fought at Troy. Achilles, of course, well, everybody had seen Achilles die on the battlefields of Troy. And as to Odysseus, well, everybody knew that he had managed to survive the war, but then had mysteriously vanished and no doubt died somewhere on his journey from Troy to Ithaca. So, as Demodocus sang his tale, neither he nor the Phaeacian audience had the slightest idea that one of the principles in the story he was telling was actually quite alive and well and listening in no doubt rapt interest and personal attention to the tale that Demodocus wove. Well, the story progressed. And then at some point in the telling, something in the story caused Odysseus to lose control of his emotions. And Odysseus began to cry. Possibly there was some memory. We don't know. Homer doesn't tell us anything about the content of the story. But the tears began to flow, and poor Odysseus, either embarrassed to be crying in public or not wanting to disrupt the brilliant performance of the storyteller, well, Odysseus did his level best to use the cloak he had been loaned to cover his face and cloak the tears from the rest of the great hall. But it didn't work. King Alcinous, the master of Xenia and therefore always attentive to the needs of his stranger guest, well, King Alcinous noted his guest's tears and realized that the poor guest was in some degree of emotional distress. And so King Alcinous immediately stood up and then tactfully, diplomatically, and oh so graciously saved his stranger guest from any further discomfort. My lords, we have already satisfied our wish for feasting, and we have delighted our hearts with story, the perfect companion, of course, to a feast. Now let us go outside and set up contests in every sport, so when our guest goes home, he can tell all of his friends just how talented we Phaeacians are at boxing, at wrestling, at high jumping, and at sprinting. And so then the entire Phaeacian nobility, King Alcinous, Athena in disguise, and our boy Odysseus repaired to the sporting fields for a full afternoon of good athletic fun. And the games began. And folks, if you're curious about what happened inside of those athletic games, well, Homer, the omniscient narrator, actually offers up in Book 8, starting about lines 100, a mini catalogue of games, if you will, full of all the details of every athlete, every sport, and then play-by-play -play highlights of the entire day's athletic proceedings. In fact, if you read Homer in this section, it sounds as though you were listening to some sportscaster offering up the morning after's play-by-play -play package of the night before's big game highlights. It's an awful lot of fun. But then, in the middle of the afternoon sporting events... Well, something rather unfortunate transpired on the playing field. And our athletic games, folks, took a decidedly ugly turn for the worse. Here's what happened. Two of the young Phaeacian men, a prince named Laodamus, 
and a swaggering young buck named Euralis, well, they decided to invite the stranger guest to compete in an event. Now, folks, Odysseus, who was intent on homecoming and, of course, now a 50-year-old man, had decided that he would set the sporting events out. But when the two young princes approached, here's what they said. No, you, sir. You. You should try our games as well. Well, that is, if you know any sports. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we 21st century listeners require a little bit of context at this point. Because those of us who participate in recreational sports today, well, we likely do so either for fun or for purposes of health and fitness. But back in the Bronze Age epics of Homer, events like the sporting activities happening today or like the, well, the athletic games which dominate Homer's Iliad, well, those sporting events, folks, had an entirely different and Bronze Age purpose. Because on the one level, those sporting events were actually very practical practice for warfare. And every one of the events featured in a Homeric Olympic Games, if you will, offers immediately transferable skills to a Bronze Age battlefield. But on another level, the games were actually a form of peacetime demonstration in which a man could demonstrate to his friends and companions his own particular military prowess on the battlefield. And so, when the young prince, Laomedus, invited Odysseus to participate in our games, but then added the qualifier, that is, if you know any sports, well, folks, Odysseus had every right to be offended. It was as if Laomedus had said, that is, sir, if you know anything at all, about warfare. And a line like that, coming from the mouth of a wealthy young Phaeacian prince who had not likely once in his entire delicate life dirtied his hands in a real battle, well, that comment quite rightly stung Odysseus, who, of course, as we know, had spent ten long years in the front ranks of the Trojan army, and then another decade fighting all sorts of monsters on his journey home. But, to our boy Odysseus's credit, he chose to deflect or to swallow the young prince's rather clumsy insult. Here's what he said. Laomedus, why mock me with this challenge? My heart... My heart is set on sorrow, not on games. The only thing that I want to do is to sit here with you now before I sail back home. And it should have ended there, ladies and gentlemen, with the clumsily delivered insult by the young prince and then the graciously delivered reply by the old contender. But it did not, because that is when the young buck, 
the lad named Euralis, piped in, in an incredibly disdainful and mocking voice. Well, I am not at all surprised, friend. You don't look like a man who is very good at sports anyway. In fact, I know your type. You are the captain of a crew of merchants. You care about freight and cargo. It is clear that you are no athlete. And with that, our boy Odysseus absolutely lost it. That, friend, was an ugly thing to say. It makes you sound like a fool. And it shows that the gods don't always give men an equal measure of brains and of good looks. You, friend, for example, are a very fine-looking fellow. Not even a god could improve on your face. But you, friend, are also a first-class moron. And following those words, Homer reports that Odysseus then leapt up and seized a massive discus, heavier than those used by all of the others. He spun around, he drew back his arm, and from his brawny hand, he hurled. And the discus went humming. The Phaeacians ducked as it sped through the air. And it overshot the marks set by everyone else's throw. And ladies and gentlemen, I know at this point, like me, you are wildly cheering for our boy Odysseus and imagining the look on the face of the young snot-nosed buck, Euryllus, finally and perfectly put into his place. But... I fear that I have to, in the interests of athletic integrity in sport, let you in on one tiny little quibbling fact. Homer actually accounts it. And when the discus had finally landed, Athena marked the landing spot. And then Athena, disguised as some sort of sporting official or judge, turned to the assembled Phaeacian athletes and quite loudly and authoritatively declared that the stranger's discus is far ahead of all of the others. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if Athena were a goddess renowned far and wide for her integrity, her honesty, or her sense of fair play, I would not now be so uncharitable as to question just how far our boy Odysseus had actually managed to throw that discus. But, given that both the competing athlete and the judge are known to us as cheats and liars, then I at least am going to insert into the Homeric record book, beside Odysseus's famous discus throw, a tiny little qualifying asterisk. Because in good conscience, I cannot discount the possibility of either a juiced discus, a juiced athlete, or a corrupt judge. But I digress. Because whatever the case, the Phaeacians, not knowing what we know about Odysseus or about Athena, 
where the Phaeacians were all duly dazzled and rightly impressed by the length of the discus throw. And as to Odysseus, well, he was now on an adrenaline high, folks, and so he took his turn at the taunting. So, what do you think? Can any of you young fellows throw a stone any further? And if you can, I will throw another one even further still. Or maybe, maybe just some of you think you can beat me at boxing, or at wrestling, or running. Or you name the sport, you choose, come on. I will compete against any of you. Go ahead, test my ability, and let me see yours. And folks then, in the midst of Odysseus's taunting, his boasting, and his bragging, he had accidentally revealed his identity. At Troy, when we Greeks shot our bows, I was always the first to hit my man. Only Philoctetes was superior to me. As for the rest, well, I outclassed them all. And ladies and gentlemen, of course, the Phaeacians knew every story of the Trojan War very well indeed. Demodocus, a storyteller, had told them all to them. And so the Phaeacians knew, as they heard this stranger guest boasting about his bowmanship on the fields of Troy, that there were only two heroes in the entire Trojan War who were renowned for having any prose at all with the bow. The mighty Greek hero Philoctetes and the other mighty Greek hero Odysseus. But somehow, the Phaeacians failed to connect the dots. And we really don't know why. The only possibility is that they were so alarmed by the mental state of their stranger guest, who was currently now preparing to roll up his sleeves and threatening to beat the living shit out of any young Phaeacian nobleman who dared so much as make eye contact with him, that possibly the Phaeacians were watching the emotions and not listening to the words of the man in front of them. But whatever the case, the accidental reveal passed unobserved, and King Alcinous, the ever-gracious king, stepped in and did his level best to smooth over the troubled waters. The king, employing his very best soothing diplomatic voice, spoke. Sir, you, sir, have expressed, with good, fine manners, your wish to show your talents and your anger at that man who stood up in the arena and mocked you, as no one would who understood how to properly speak. And with those words, King Alcinous did his best to change the topic of conversation. By inviting Demodocus, the professional storyteller who was there listening to the games, to distract the angry men by telling the angry men a story. Now, folks, Demodocus was a professional storyteller, which meant that he knew instinctively and instantly exactly what sort of a story this particular anger-fraught moment required. Demodocus realized that standing in front of him there, he had an audience of angry, testosterone-driven, and adrenaline-fueled men. And he knew that the very best way to distract any man 
from whatever is currently occupying his mind, is to change the topic of the conversation to sex. And so Demodocus reached into his professional repertoire and launched into precisely the sort of story that this particular occasion so clearly demanded. A naughty and salacious little bedroom adventure, with lots and lots and lots of opportunity for the young men hearing the story to channel their energies and their overactive imaginations away from thoughts of honor and fights and towards thoughts of Aphrodite instead. The story that Demodocus told went something like this. Aphrodite, the goddess of lust and sexual passion, as every man in the audience that day knew, was married to Hephaestus, the blacksmith god of the Olympian Forge. But Aphrodite, as every man in that audience also knew, was a philandering goddess, for whom the concept of monogamy or the entire institute of marriage meant absolutely nothing at all. Well, apparently, Aphrodite had started into an affair with Ares, the god of war. And eventually Hephaestus, Aphrodite's husband, had caught wind of the details of said affair. Now, this posed a problem for Hephaestus. He could not afford to let the cuckolding stand. His pride and his reputation on Mount Olympus as a husband were at stake. But Hephaestus faced a problem. He simply did not dare to confront Ares, the god of war, in any form of a physical fight. No intelligent or self-preserving Olympian god would have. And further, folks, while Hephaestus was lame and crippled from birth, so not only would he be humiliated and embarrassed by having Ares, the oh-so-masculine god of war, in his wife's bed, if he ended up in a physical confrontation with Ares, he would be badly beaten. Now here's the good news. Hephaestus might have been crippled in the physique department, but he was by far and away the most clever, ingenious, and intelligent god on all of Mount Olympus. So Hephaestus came up with a scheme which would not beat Ares in a fight or beat his wife Aphrodite as a punishment, but rather would find a way to publicly humiliate and shame the two of them. Here's what Hephaestus did. He repaired to his Olympian forge, and he constructed an elaborate trap. And folks, when the trap was complete, it essentially resembled an almost invisible but absurdly strong spiderweb. It appears to have been constructed out of some special metal which could not be seen, but which, once you were tangled in it, was impossible to extract yourself from. And then once the trap had been assembled, Hephaestus assembled the net over top of his and his wife Aphrodite's marital bed. Then Hephaestus headed back to his forge. 
and at the forge, he went to work on constructing an elaborate tripwire pressure-sensitive mechanism. So delicate, in fact, that one body would not trigger it, two bodies, if the body were Aphrodite's and his own small body, would not trigger it, but two bodies, if the bodies were Aphrodite's and the massive bulk of Ares, the god of war, would certainly set the trap off. And then, with everything in place, Hephaestus strode into the great hall at Mount Olympus, and loud enough that his adulterous wife Aphrodite could hear, Hephaestus declared that he was heading out of town on business for a few days. And of course, the trap worked. Aphrodite, hearing the good news that her husband was going to be out of town, well, Aphrodite immediately text-messaged her lover Ares. Club foot gone. Me horny. Are you? Come now. Or in Homer's somewhat more eloquent Bronze Age language, Hephaestus is out of town. Quick, my darling, come. Let us go to bed and lose ourselves together in love. And so, the eager Ares arrived, and Aphrodite, already lying enticingly on the marital bed, urged her lover Ares to climb on board. The bed, that is. And Homer then accounts what happened. But before they knew it, the cunning network of chains descended and wrapped them tight. Neither of them could move an inch, and they realized that they were trapped. And folks, the master craftsman Hephaestus's net was cunningly constructed. So it caught the illicit lovers in, well, a rather intimate and compromised position. And struggle as they did, they simply could not move out of that interesting position. And of course, in this bedroom comedy farce, that is when the jolted husband Hephaestus stepped back in to his and his wife's bedroom. And then Hephaestus exacted his revenge. He called out the entire pantheon of Olympian gods. And when they were assembled, he pointed to his wife Aphrodite and her lover Ares, and he spoke. Look at the two of them, lying together in my own bed. But I do not think they will want to stay entwined quite so closely for very much longer. However attractive they find each other, soon they will grow tired of being trussed up in that position. And the Olympian gods, who had all come running, for the delicious, scandalous entertainment value, of course, but no doubt also to see Aphrodite herself unclothed and in a deliciously compromised position, well, the Olympian gods arrived, took in the scene, and began to laugh, cheer, joke, and high-five each other in earnest. And soon, folks, the bedroom scene and the conversation between those male Olympian gods took on a decidedly frat boy tenor. 
the god Apollo, appraising Aphrodite's delicious body, turned and jokingly quipped to the god Hermes. Uh, so, dude, like, uh, would you be willing to lie in chains for, for, like, everyone to see if that was the price of, well, getting it on with sweet Aphrodite? And Hermes, the messenger god, had wistfully and eagerly replied, Brother, I would willingly be tied up three times as tight and let all of my peeps watch if that was the price of getting a chance to do that goddess. And, ladies and gentlemen, just before your emails start pouring in, I confess that I might have taken some liberties in my Homeric translation. But though my dialogue might not be exactly Homeric Greek, the truth is I think I have actually quite accurately described and captured the tone of frat boy fun that was happening that day inside of the blacksmith god Hephaestus's bedroom. Well, whatever the case, the laughter, the joking, and no doubt the fantasizing went on for some time. But eventually there was a practical problem to resolve. Hephaestus demanded restitution, and he absolutely refused to let the adulterous couple go until he was convinced that Ares, the adulterer, would pay him a price for having slept with Hephaestus's wife. Now, Ares promised to pay the price, but the problem was Hephaestus, for some reason, God knows what, did not trust Ares to keep his word. And so the situation sat at an impasse, with the adulterous couple still trapped and trussed, if you will, until Poseidon, the god of the sea, stepped in as guarantor to Ares' debt. If Ares defaulted on what he owed Hephaestus, Poseidon promised he would pay it off. And, with that settled, Hephaestus finally agreed to let the adulterous couple free. Well, the moment they were out of the chains, Ares wasted no time. He got out of Mount Olympus and he flew off to distant Thrace to lick his wounds, I suppose. But, as to Aphrodite, our goddess of lust and sexual passion, well, even once her chains were removed, she took her sweet, luscious, and lascivious time in getting off of the bed and setting her hair and then slowly, gracefully, and oh-so-teasingly taking her leave of the assembled Olympian gods, giving the men in that room memories to last an eternal lifetime. And with that, folks, the song of Demodocus, the gifted storyteller, came to an end. And the story, I can assure you, worked. All of the men in that playing field, young and old, who had previously been hyped up in adrenaline and ready to roll up their sleeves and fight each other, well, all of those men had replaced their fantasies of fighting with Aphrodite fantasies instead. And folks, if you'll allow me a brief digression... I'd like to step out of Demodocus's decision to tell his story and into Homer, the author's decision, to include the Aphrodite story inside of his Odyssey. And I think if we stop to consider why Homer included the story, 
it's pretty obvious. The Aphrodite Ares story, essentially at its core, is absolutely identical to the Clytemnestra Agamemnon story, which we have heard told to us over and over and over again inside of Homer's Odyssey. Now, the story we just heard now was done for comedy, whereas the Clytemnestra Agamemnon story is done, of course, for tragedy. But both stories, if you boil them down, are essentially dire warnings. Warnings to men about what will likely happen if you go out of town and how your wife, likely adulteress, will soon immediately have some other man in your bed. And ultimately, folks, both stories, Aphrodite Ares and Clytemnestra Agamemnon, are, if you just scratch a wee bit beneath the surface, essentially stories about Penelope and Odysseus. And since our storyteller Homer has now gone all of two books without once reminding us about Agamemnon and Clytemnestra and the faithlessness of wives in general, well, here inside of Demodocus's light-hearted little bedroom sex romp, Homer has found a way to remind we readers and we listeners of the Odyssey's ongoing preoccupation. Now, did Odysseus, hearing the story, draw some sort of a link back to his own wife and the 20 years on which he had been away on business, so to speak? Well, the truth is, folks, we'll never know. But the athletic games were now well over. And so the Phaeacian nobility decided it was time to head home. They all wanted to get a hot bath and then a bit of a nap in before the evening's feasting to follow. But King Alcinous stopped them. In order to ensure that there were no residual hard feelings on the part of his stranger guest, King Alcinous commanded his nobles that when they returned for the evening feast, quote, Let each of us bring with him a freshly washed cloak and a tunic, and a large bar of solid gold. Well, Odysseus, smiling to himself, headed back to the guest quarters inside of the palace, and settled in for a hot bath and then a hot oil rubdown, courtesy of the palace slave girls. And it was on his way back from his royal treatment in the bathhouse, so to speak, that Odysseus, all freshly bathed, groomed, garmented, and oiled, had bumped into young Princess Nausicaa. He found her standing alone in the hallway of her father's great palace. Well, folks, a awkward moment of silence ensued. And then it was young Nausicaa, to her credit, who broke the awkwardness and spoke first. And it was quite clear in the princess's words that she had realized already that she and this absolutely gorgeous stranger guest had no future together. And it's pretty obvious, folks, that our boy Odysseus had somehow earlier in the day found a way to diplomatically, but also graciously, turn down King Alcinous's discreetly made offer of his daughter's hand in marriage. 
And so Princess Nausicaa spoke. Goodbye then, stranger. But remember me when you reach home, because you owe me your life. Remember that I helped you first. To which the ever-gracious Odysseus had quite kindly replied, Nausicaa, princess, may all of your good wishes soon come to pass. And if I do make it home, I shall pray to you as to a god. Nausicaa, I know that I owe you my life. And with those words, folks, the two of them, Princess and Wanderer, parted for the final time. Nausicaa to the ladies' quarters, and then, some day in the future with any luck, to a husband and a happy new home of her very own. And our boy Odysseus? Well, he repaired to the banquet hall, and then in the morning, with any luck, to Penelope and his happy home. And when Odysseus arrived in the banqueting hall, well, the attendants were already serving the food and mixing massive bowls of wine. And the evening's featured entertainment, once again the storyteller Demodocus, was being led to his place of high honor in the center of the hall. And ladies and gentlemen, that is when Odysseus, a consummate storyteller himself, then demonstrated how any civilized and considerate listener shows appropriate appreciation of their favorite storyteller. Odysseus sent Demodocus an absolutely lavish gift. Now, this was the Bronze Age. And so PayPal, e-transfers, and personal checks through the mail, which all work very nicely in the 21st century if you're taking notes, well, all of those means were unfortunately unavailable to our boy Odysseus. And you have to remember, folks, that Odysseus was still, well, in a literal sense at least, quite penniless. A lot of Phaeacian gold had been promised to him, but as of now, none of that gold had been delivered. But that did not stop our boy Odysseus from paying or donating his appropriate thanks. So the ever-resourceful hero did the best he could with the Bronze Age resources at his disposal. First, Odysseus selected an absolutely fine and choice cut of meat. In fact, the very best piece of meat at the entire table. And then, calling the chief herald over, Odysseus announced in a voice chosen so that the entire hall of nobles would hear the following. Go, bring this to Demodocus. Tell him that I greet him with much appreciation. All men should give storytellers their reverence, and their respects. And folks, as much as I would personally like to dwell on Odysseus's edict at length, that all men, ancient and modern, should take the time and the trouble to send donations their storyteller's way, I fear that I have to, 
in fairness, report that our boy Odysseus might also have had some ulterior and self-serving motivations in the generous donation that he made to Demodocus's Storyteller's Cup. Because, an hour or so later into the feasting, once everybody in the hall was quite sated on good food and good wine, and ready to sit back and invite Demodocus to settle into his evening's set list, well, Homer reports the following to us. And then Odysseus, the clever mastermind of many schemes, said, Demodocus, you are wonderful. I praise you more than anyone. You tell so accurately what the Greeks achieved and what they suffered at Troy. So, Demodocus, sing now the story of the wooden horse and of how Odysseus came up with that brilliant scheme. If you can tell me this tale, I will proclaim to all men that some god has truly inspired you with his stories. And folks, if you think about the situation that Demodocus was now in, well, whether the wooden horse had originally been part of his evening set list or not, he could hardly refuse the stranger's request at this point. Because he recalled, everybody in the hall had seen it, that just an hour earlier, the stranger had sent him a very, very generous and very, very public donation. And so Demodocus, whether he had planned on it or not, nodded, bowed his head, struck up his lyre, and launched into the story Odysseus had requested. The story of Odysseus's very own wooden horse. But, as the story unfolded, Odysseus's clever plan to make himself the highlight piece of the evening, and possibly later after that, reveal his identity after his moment of great epic triumph, well, that plan rather backfired on our boy Odysseus. Because the story, much like the Achilles-Odysseus quarrel story that had started off this day, well, the wooden horse story also proved to evoke far too many powerful memories in our wandering hero. And so, instead of joy, the story of the wooden horse induced in Odysseus only pain. Memories of all of his friends, comrades, and companions who had died on the bloody battlefields of Troy. And once again, Odysseus, the stranger guest, sitting conspicuously in the middle of that Phaeacian great hall, began to cry. But this time, ladies and gentlemen, his tears were absolutely uncontrollable. And I need to pause us here. Because folks, Homer, in order to explain Odysseus's tears at this part of the story, well, Homer the storyteller employs an absolutely sophisticated and genius extended simile. 
In fact, a lot of scholars argue that this is the most famous and genius extended simile in all of Homer's Odyssey. So here's what Homer does. He is going to compare the tears of the Greek hero Odysseus on hearing the story of his famous wooden horse to the tears of a Trojan woman and the tears that a woman like that would have shed on the night of the wooden horse when her city, of course, fell, her husband, of course, died in battle, and she, of course, was then led into a life of slavery and servitude. So, it's an awful lot to pack into a simile about a man crying. But here's how Homer, the storyteller, wrote it. I quote, Odysseus was melting into tears. His cheeks were wet with weeping. As a woman weeps, as she falls to wrap her arms around her husband, fallen, fighting for his home and children. She is watching as he gasps and dies. She shrieks, a clear high wail, collapsing upon his corpse. The men are right behind her. They hit her shoulders with spears and they lead her to slavery hard labor, and a life of pain. Her face is masked with despair. In that same desperate way, Odysseus was crying. And that, ladies and gentlemen, credit where credit is due is word for word directly from the 2017 Emily Wilson translation of Homer's Odyssey. Now, if we pause to consider the Homeric simile, it really is rather remarkable because it compares Odysseus the Conqueror's tears shed for the friends and the comrades that he lost on the battlefields of Troy to the tears of a woman whose city he and his comrades had just so joyously raped pillaged, butchered, and burned. And folks, there is absolutely no indication at all that Odysseus, the great sacker of cities, was shedding that afternoon in the Phaeacian court even a single one of his tears for the good people of Troy. We don't want to be under any illusions about our boy Odysseus. On the night that Troy fell, his arms were at least as thick in Trojan blood as were any other Greeks. So Odysseus, hearing Demodocus's song, while Odysseus did not care one whit about Trojan losses or the tears of Trojan women. But the thing that makes the simile brilliant, folks, is that Homer does care about those Trojan tears. And in the middle of a story, which is all about the victories of the Greeks, particularly the victories of the Greeks on the night when Troy fell, Homer finds a subtle way to remind us all of the Trojan experience on the famous night of Odysseus's wooden horse. Okay, enough scholarly geeky stuff. Back to our story. 
So Odysseus continued crying, and finally King Alcinous, who had been, of course, closely watching his stranger guest's behavior. Well, King Alcinous stood up and put a stop to Demodocus's story. Because by now, King Alcinous could see that there was something clearly amiss. Every time that Demodocus launched into a song of the Trojan War, the stranger guest sitting in their midst was almost immediately reduced to tears. So Alcinous, who had now provided Xenia, decided it was time for his guest to come clean on the guest's backstory, if you will. King Alcinous spoke. Stranger, now answer all of my questions. And without evasion, frankness would be for the best. What did your parents name you? With what name are you known to your people? And tell me, what country did you come from? And further, did you lose somebody at Troy? Possibly a man from your wife's family, uh, perhaps her father or her brother. Or did you lose a friend, a friend who you knew best of all? Tell us, stranger, who are you? And of course, folks, at this stage in the proceedings, Xenia required that Odysseus, who had been given exemplary hospitality, now reciprocate by providing his name and the nature of his business on the Phaeacian shores. So Odysseus stood up, and in a moment of great and quite theatrical reveal, Odysseus declared the following. I am Odysseus, son of Laertes, and my fame, it reaches the heavens. But I live in Ithaca. Well, no doubt the hall erupted. There would have been cheers, there would have been celebrations, there would have been all the great excitement that Odysseus, long lost, was alive. And then, of course, there would have been the practical questions about, so where have you been for the last ten years? We all thought you were dead. Which, of course, was the moment that Odysseus, the consummate storyteller himself, had been hoping for. Now, ladies and gentlemen... Odysseus was going to get to step onto the stage and tell his own great wanderings story. And as to Demodocus, well, Demodocus was enough of a pro that he was more than happy to recognize that there was nothing he could do now. He had been upstaged, if ever a storyteller could be upstaged. So Demodocus, quite graciously, turned over center stage to Odysseus and encouraged Odysseus to tell his great wandering's tale. And ladies and gentlemen, as I mentioned to you in the preceding post-story commentary, Demodocus, no doubt, took massive detailed mental notes and increased his repertoire of Odysseus stories by a good four hours' worth. And ladies and gentlemen, we know that Odysseus, standing there in the banqueting hall, went on for four long, glorious, wonderful, uninterrupted hours while his Phaeacian hosts sat in spellbound detention. Though, technically speaking, I suppose, I have to inform you that Odysseus was required to pause his narrative once. He was right smack dab in the middle of his journey to the land of the dead story when an overly enthusiastic and absolutely entranced Queen Ariete simply could not contain herself. 
she stood up and spoke to the guests. Phaeacians, look at him! What a tall, handsome man, and, and what a mind on him! He is my special guest, but all of you share in our rank as lords. So, do not send him home too fast, and when he leaves, you must be generous. He is in need, and you are rich with treasure. And barely had Queen Ariete sat down, than King Alcinous, also enthusiastic, stood up and heaped even more praise onto the man he now knew was Odysseus. Here's what he said. Odysseus, the earth sustains all different kinds of people. Many of them are cheats and thieves who fashion lies out of thin air. But when I look at you, I know that you are not part of that category. And folks, well, it's hard not to see King Alcinous's sweetly naive assessment of our boy Odysseus as being penned by the storyteller Homer with more than just a little bit of a nudge, a wink, and a twinkle inside of his storyteller's eye. But whatever the case, eventually Odysseus's great wanderings account came to a close, and he thrilled the entertained and the, no doubt, absolutely exhausted Phaeacian nobility. Well, they prepared to head home for a good remaining of the night's sleep. But once again, good King Alcinous stopped them before they could leave, enthusiastically decreeing that before sleep, they must return to the palace with even more guest gifts for Odysseus to take with him on his journey home. I quote, But now, in addition, I ask each of you here to give him a costly tripod and a cauldron. And ladies and gentlemen, you might quite rightly at this stage be feeling a little bit badly for the poor Phaeacian nobility who more and more and more are being taxed due to the enthusiasm of good King Alcinous and bringing more and more and more guest gifts down to the ship that is going to ferry Odysseus home. But I need to assure you, your worries for the fiscal sufferings of the Phaeacian nobility are misplaced. Because as you know... As we know, as any taxpayer in the history of any nation on this earth so grimly knows, when any king, any president, or any prime minister, part of the wealthy 1% already, magnanimously declares that great gifts will be awarded to some particular person or some particular cause, well, you know, I know, everybody knows that it is the rest of us, the 99%, who are ultimately going to end up paying for those great gifts. King Alcinous continued his speech. In order to recoup our loss, we will levy a tax onto the people. Since it would be a great burden for a rich man to make a generous gift 
at his own expense. And so, folks, on the land of the Phaeacians, higher taxes for the poor and the middle class, but for the wealthiest 1%, tax write-offs and abundant loopholes. And in this way, I suppose we could say that Homer's Odyssey truly is a timeless, ageless, and universal tale. But let's return to our story. The final guest gifts were delivered, and then the entire massive hoard of treasure that Odysseus had accumulated, earned, or milked out of his generous Phaeacian hosts. Well, that treasure was loaded into heavy chests, and those heavy chests were secured aboard a Phaeacian ship. And after an interminably long series of speeches, of sacrifices, of libations, and of prayers to the gods, Odysseus finally, finally, finally stepped aboard the ship that had been commissioned to ferry him on home. While the Phaeacian crew spread out heavy blankets onto the stern deck, and Odysseus, exhausted from a very long day and then from four hours of uninterrupted live performance storytelling, well, Odysseus, before he drifted into sleep, provided the crew with some last-minute directions upon reaching the shores of his beloved Ithaca. And then as the ship sped out of the Ithacan harbour, towards home, across Poseidon's wine-dark sea, Odysseus, gratefully, fell sound asleep. Well, in the morning, the ship arrived at the island kingdom of Ithaca. And the crew, following Odysseus's instructions from the night before, deliberately did not land in the main harbour. Rather, they pulled the ship into a remote bay, and they landed it on a beach there. And so, folks, well, you might be asking why. And here's the answer. As much as our boy Odysseus would doubtless have reveled in the spectacle of a glorious and a triumphant hero's homecoming to the Ithacan main harbour, Odysseus had learned enough hard lessons in the last decade to appreciate that such a direct approach might prove imprudent. The approach had certainly not worked out very well for Agamemnon. Agamemnon, of course, had opted for the dramatic and theatrical homecoming triumph, and in the process, Agamemnon had blundered into a homecoming trap. And no doubt on top of that, Odysseus would have remembered at this moment the words inside of the curse of the Cyclops Polythemus. And remember what Polythemus had said. May he come home very late, and in a wretched condition, on a foreign ship, having caused the death of all of his men. And let him find more trouble waiting for him in his very own home. And so Odysseus cautiously had instructed the Phaeacian crew that landing in the Ithacan harbour was not a good plan. Rather, Odysseus had instructed the crew to land on a remote and unpopulated beach of a tiny little bay. From there, he would be able to cautiously map out his homecoming strategy. 
Well, the ship pulled up onto the beach, and the crew, seeing their guest Odysseus still sound asleep on the rear deck, well, they gently lifted Odysseus ashore and deposited him underneath a shady tree. And then they unloaded chest after bulging chest full of guest gifts. These they hid behind an olive tree, out of sight from the road into town. And with that, folks, the Phaeacians, the masters of hospitality, reboarded their own ship and sailed for home, leaving our boy Odysseus, after twenty long years away, sleeping peacefully on the shores of his very own dear land. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where I wish I could leave our story for now. But I fear that I have to add one short coda to our happy story. And for that coda, I need to invite you to follow me up to the Great Hall on Mount Olympus, where Poseidon, the god of the sea, is in a particularly foul mood. And taking out his rage, his spleen, and his all-round anger on his brother Zeus, the king of the gods. Now, the nature of Poseidon's complaint appears to be grounded in the fact that, from Poseidon's perspective at least, Odysseus had just got in the story's last laugh. So far as Poseidon was concerned, he had spent a decade attempting to waylay, defeat, or destroy Odysseus. But now, here, ten years later, well, his nemesis was safely ashore his own dear country, and, to make it worse, in possession of even more treasure, courtesy of the Phaeacian taxpayers, than Odysseus had gained way back during his sack of Troy ten years ago. So, as far as Poseidon was concerned, he, the god of the sea, had lost face in his decades-long game of cat and mouse with Odysseus. And now, as far as Poseidon was concerned, somebody somehow was going to have to make up for the god of the sea's foul mood. Now, it was much too late to further harm Odysseus. Zeus had decreed that Odysseus was now off-limits, at least so far as Poseidon was concerned. But Zeus, the king of the gods, did want to placate his brother. Because, folks, whenever a god's deific ego or deific sensibilities were even remotely offended, then, of course, according to the Olympian law, some human or group of humans had to pay a terrible price. So Zeus, turning to Poseidon, had spoken. Brother, we gods do not dishonor you. But if willful humans have failed to show respect, then punish them. Do as you wish. To which Poseidon had quite eagerly replied, I have always wanted to. So now, when that fine ship of those Phaeacians comes back from helping Odysseus, I want to smash that ship to pieces in the sea, and then overwhelm their city with a mountain to prevent those people from ever helping strangers again. And folks, I fear that I now have to report 
that Zeus, the god of Xenia, sometimes even referred to as Xenios Zeus, immediately declared that his brother had come up with an absolutely brilliant plan. Brother, here's what seems best to me. As the people all lean down from the city heights to watch their ship speeding home, turn the ship into stone, and then surround their city with a huge mountain. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what you get for being the most flawless and devout practitioners of Zeus's great law of Xenia in the entire Mediterranean world. Your ship and its crew gets transformed into stone, and your entire nation gets blocked off from the world by a high mountain. But things get worse. Poor King Alcinous, standing on the battlements of his city walls and witnessing the twin disasters, well, Alcinous recalled a prophecy. Because, of course, in Greek myth, there was always a prophecy. King Alcinous spoke. So it is true. My father long ago said that Poseidon hates us for our habit of helping travelers get home again. He foretold that one day Poseidon would destroy a ship and hide our city with a mountain. And now the old man's words are coming true. So, all of you Phaeacians, listen to me now. Stop helping strangers. And Homer's Odyssey, which hammers home the duty of Xenia over and over and over again, in this one telling moment, illustrates just how far Zeus, Xenios Zeus, will actually go in protecting and rewarding the human beings who practice his law. Zeus blithely allowed an entire civilization to be cut off from the rest of the world, simply in order to placate his petulant and whiny brother. And ladies and gentlemen, is it any wonder that the gods of the Bronze Age eventually fell out of favor down here on earth with we mortals? Because they offered neither justice, nor compassion, or even at a bare minimum, some base level of predictability in their behavior towards us. All that you could do if you were a Phaeacian, or anybody else living in the Bronze Age, when it came to the gods, was to burn your sacrificial bribes to them and then, in abject terror, hunker down and hope for the best. And that is where we are going to leave this episode. And so, in episode number 12 of Odyssey the Podcast, our boy Odysseus is going to wake up in Ithaca for the very first time in 20 long years. And pretty well the moment he wakes up, he is going to discover that his perils, his trials, and his tribulations have only really just begun. 
for we podcast listeners, it is going to be a whole heck of a lot of really, really good fun. And ladies and gentlemen, since we are speaking of fun, the upcoming post-story commentary is going to return to that very first story that Demodocus told to his Phaeacian hosts. The story about the famous, known throughout the world, bitter quarrel that took place during the Trojan War between Achilles and our boy Odysseus. And folks, I'm going to tell you all about that quarrel, because although Homer assures us that it was well-known and famous throughout the world, my guess is that none of you listening now have ever even heard the first thing about it. And in the post-story commentary to follow, well, I will reveal all. But, just before we dive into that commentary, perhaps now is an appropriate time and an appropriate place in our story to pause for just a moment and take stock. Because if you think about it, we have been journeying together now you, the faithful listener, and me, your faithful storytelling guide, through 15 hours of podcasting entertainment. And just so you know, we have hours and hours of story waiting ahead of us before this epic tale comes to its end. So now, now might be the appropriate time for me, your storytelling guide, to pass my hat and ask you to consider making a one-time donation to this, our Odyssey the Podcast, shared storytelling adventure. Ladies and gentlemen, once Odysseus had wrapped up the four hours of his great wandering story, you will recall that his grateful listeners chose to say thanks for the entertainment with generous donations of cauldrons, of tripods, of gold bars, and of freshly laundered, only slightly used, tunics. And Odysseus personally, when Demodocus wrapped up his full day of epic storytelling performance, well, Odysseus chose to thank Demodocus, his favorite teller, with a very prime cut of steak. So, if you would like to send me, as your way of saying thanks for these stories, a cauldron, a tripod, a box of steaks, or even, I suppose, a freshly laundered, only slightly used shirt, well then, by all means, send away. Uh, just email me, I'll provide a home address, and then I will do my best to look eagerly forward to your wonderful gift. On the other hand, if you would prefer to send me a gold bar, well then simply send me your own home address and I will go to the trouble of sparing you the delivery expense and come to your home and pick it up personally. But the reality is, folks, the most practical way to say thanks for these stories in this particular 21st century is to simply pay a quick visit to my website odysseythepodcast.com. And then from there, just click on the donate button and follow the instructions on the screen to simply, safely, and rather instantly send me cash. 
There are a few different ways you can do it. All of them are neatly outlined on the website. And as to what I will do with your donation? Well, to be quite honest, folks, I'm rather pretty well equipped in the cauldron department, and I'm not entirely sure what a tripod is. So I might, if I receive a nice donation from you, treat myself to the occasional steak, or possibly to a freshly laundered and only slightly used shirt. But in truth, here's what your donation will do. First of all, it will ensure that Odyssey the Podcast remains available and free. And incidentally, free of third-party advertising. For listeners like you, but also folks for the thousands of listeners I have worldwide who quite benefit from this podcast, but quite simply do not have the fiscal means to donate to it. And next, well, your donation will be your personal concrete way of saying thanks for the entertainment to me, your faithful 21st century Demodocus. And that, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes my donation request. But please do know, your one-time donation, however small it might seem to you, will add up with all of those other one-time donations to make a real and a tangible difference to me. And folks, I promise you this. If you accompany your donation with a short note, well, what I will do is personally reply to that note. Of course, to thank you, first of all, but also, if you want, to answer any and all of your questions or your queries that you might have about Odyssey the Podcast or about anything to do with Greek Epic. So once again, ladies and gentlemen, the website that you need to go to is odysseythepodcast.com. And allow me now to thank you in advance for your donation. And may Zeus... Athena, and all of the other gods, bless you and reward your wonderful generosity. And so welcome back, everybody, to the post-story commentary. The upcoming commentary is going to return to that very first story that Demodocus told to his Phaeacian hosts. The story about the famous, known throughout the world, bitter quarrel that took place during the Trojan War between Achilles and our boy Odysseus. And folks, I'm going to tell you all about that quarrel, because although Homer assures us that it was well known and famous throughout the world, my guess is that none of you listening now have ever even heard the first thing about it. But here's the good news, folks. None of us are actually losing our memories or our minds. Because, except for one tiny little mention in book number eight of Homer's Odyssey, the story of the Achilles-Odysseus quarrel does not exist anywhere else at all, nor is it referenced anywhere in all of ancient Greek literature. Now, Before we get on to what that interesting factoid means and the implications of it, allow me to provide every one of us with a quick synopsis of everything that Homer actually tells us about the famous quarrel. 
Here's what we learn in Odyssey Book 8. Apparently, at some stage in the ten long years of the Trojan War, Achilles and Odysseus were sitting at a feast, and given Homer's predilection for feasts, that could have well been pretty well any day of the week. And at that feast, the two men had argued bitterly. And the argument seems to have pleased Agamemnon, king of kings and leader of the Greek operation at Troy. Because apparently, Agamemnon had been informed at some earlier date, by no less than the Delphic Oracle, that the Odysseus-Achilles quarrel was some sort of a precondition or precursor before the Trojan War could finally and ultimately come to a successful end. And ladies and gentlemen, except for that scant little bit of information, we know nothing else at all about the argument between Odysseus and Achilles, which leads us to only one of two possible options. Either option A, Homer or Homers or the committee of Homers who wrote, cobbled down, dictated, created the Odyssey, actually made the entire story up out of thin air. And there never ever was, back in the ancient world, a world-famous, known across the world and even to the heavens, argument between Achilles and Odysseus. Or option B, that back in the Bronze Age, there really was a well-known story. But then, due to the nature of fate, time, and all the terrible things that happened to all of our ancient works of literature, those stories got lost. And we have nothing left now but an enticing four-sentence allusion to those stories in Book 8 of Homer's Odyssey. Now, there is absolutely no way 3,000 years after the story and 2,500 years after Homer got it written down that we will ever know the truth between option A or option B. But folks, sitting here with you now, if I were a betting man, well, I would put my money onto the second option. I actually suspect that there was, at once upon a time, some story about an argument between these two great Greek heroes. So, what causes me to believe that? Well, simply put, folks, if ever two major lead characters from Homer's world were going to have any kind of a basis for a better interpersonal dispute, it would have been Achilles and our boy Odysseus. Now, on the surface, of course, well, the two of them were really very similar to each other. They were both incredibly gifted, incredibly capable, and incredibly intelligent men. That much they shared. But in terms of their personality and their priorities and their entire way of looking at life, well, Achilles and Odysseus were polar opposites. Achilles was, most of the time and usually to a fault, a highly principled, high-minded, and even romantic idealist. Whereas... If Odysseus could be described in any way, and if Odysseus was anything to a fault, then that thing would have to be a self-interested, 
situational pragmatist. So folks, what I think we can agree on is that the two men, because of their core temperaments, would have had a very hard time dealing with each other. Achilles would absolutely loathe a man like Odysseus and consider him nothing more than a smooth-talking but shameless and self-interested opportunist. Whereas a man of Odysseus's temperament, well, he would look to a guy like Achilles and consider him to be a man so self-obsessed with precious principle that in the world of real politic, he was pig-headedly incapable of ever cutting a deal, accepting a compromise, or even considering that in an argument, he might be in the wrong. So folks, it is my hypothesis and suspicion that in the ten years in which the Greeks sat on the beaches of Troy, Achilles and Odysseus, although allies and in one sense comrades in arms, on a much more deep and base level, likely barely managed to keep the lid on what would have been a powerful dislike of each other. And I actually think that there's a moment inside of Homer's Iliad which goes some way, at least, towards supporting my hypothesis. There's this famous scene inside of the Iliad in which Odysseus attempts to employ his smooth rhetoric in an effort to convince the insufferably high-minded Achilles to relent in his idealism and cut a practical deal for the general good of the Greek army. Now, the scene I'm referring to, of course, is referred to by the scholars as the Embassy to Achilles scene. And in that scene, Odysseus, as I told you, arrives at the tent of Achilles as a representative of Agamemnon, the king of kings and the leader of the Greek coalition forces at Troy. Now, just a little bit of context. Both Achilles and Odysseus loathed Agamemnon. Because, folks, the Agamemnon of the Trojan War epic is decidedly not the innocent good guy who shows up later inside of Homer's Odyssey. Rather, in the Iliad and in almost all of these stories that predate the background to the Trojan War, Agamemnon is a remarkably ineffectual politician who, once you stripped away the outward facade of bluster, of bullying, and of his self-congratulatory aggrandizing, well, Agamemnon was actually an absolute disaster at winning this war or at making his Greece great again. And so intelligent insiders, men like Achilles and Odysseus, who spent hour upon hour inside of Agamemnon's command tent, well, they had quickly realized the truth of it. Agamemnon, once you got beyond the blustering shell, had an absolutely hollow and vacuous interior. But that left the question of, well, what do you do about it? And folks, it was actually on that question where Achilles and Odysseus would have parted ways. Because Achilles, the principled, high-minded idealist, simply could not or would not do anything to help make that relationship work. And as far as Achilles was concerned, 
if the entire Greek world had to suffer such that he could maintain his personal integrity and high-minded principles, well, Achilles was more than happy to make that trade-off on behalf of everybody else. But Odysseus, on the other hand, well, our boy Odysseus was the situational pragmatist. So Odysseus's view in the matter was, although Agamemnon was an idiot, he was, like it or not, the Greek world's current idiot-in-chief. And as far as Odysseus was concerned, then the only viable course of action was to accept the unfortunate fact of Agamemnon and then engage in damage control. And ladies and gentlemen, in the sweeping story arc of the Trojan War epic, Odysseus essentially takes on the role of the Agamemnon Whisperer, part vice president, part press secretary, and part chief of staff. And if that meant some tongue-biting and even some ass-kissing, when it came to managing Greece's greatest impediment to victory, well, that was the sort of price that a man like Odysseus was willing to pay. But that, of course, brings us full circle. Because, ladies and gentlemen, it was certainly not the sort of price that a man like Achilles would ever consider paying. And so, on that day when Odysseus paid his visit to the tent of Achilles, spouting his smooth-talking political rhetoric on behalf of his boss, here is how Achilles replied. I quote from Homer. Odysseus, I am going to speak plain words and tell you exactly what I am thinking and what I am going to do, so that you won't sit here cooing and trying to coax me into agreement. I hate, like the gates of Hades, a man who says one thing, but hides another inside. And so, folks... These stories of the bitter quarrel between Achilles and our boy Odysseus, I believe, are entirely plausible, because both Agamemnon and Odysseus were men who were practiced and expert at saying one thing and hiding another inside. So that, ladies and gentlemen, well, that gives us the general grounding for the possibility of better quarrel between the two men. But I think we can actually, with a little wee bit of forensic creativity, deduce an actual specific detail of where Achilles and Odysseus would have quarreled. So a quick reminder. The Trojan War, as you know, lasted for 10 long years. And for most of those 10 long years, the war was essentially just a stalemate and a deadlock. Agamemnon's forces camped out on a hot, stinking beach, and the Trojans hid out behind their high, impenetrable walls. And Homer's Iliad, if you've forgotten, well, it doesn't even open up in its story until well into the final weeks of that 10 years of war. Now, you've got to imagine that during the 10 years of the war, Agamemnon would have held regular senior staff meetings, if you will, 
And at these meetings, you would have had all of the great warlords that Homer talks about in such loving detail inside of his Iliad. And what they would have done during those meetings was discuss strategy. All, of course, aimed on effectively bringing the city of Troy to its knees as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Now, what I want you to imagine is that as the long ten bitter years of pointless, deadlocked siege warfare dragged on and on and on, a number of Greek warlords would have argued that Troy simply could not be taken by force, so instead should be taken by artifice or by deceit. And if the Greek word metis comes to mind here, well, it should. Because the generals inside of this camp, folks, would have, more than anything else, have argued in favor of situational pragmatism. They would have said that personal battles on the battlefield, glorious heroic and the stuff of legend, myth, and great heroic song, notwithstanding, those battles were not bringing the Greek world any closer to victory. Now, if you, at this stage, then line up our two bitterly quarreling characters, it's pretty immediately obvious which camp each of our two characters would have fallen into. Achilles, the consummate battlefield soldier himself, well, he would have favored honorably deciding it on the battlefield. Whereas Odysseus, the human embodiment of Metis wisdom, well, Odysseus inside of the command tent would have argued for situational pragmatism and simply said, look, force isn't getting us anywhere. It's been 10 years. Let's try a new tactic instead. And ladies and gentlemen, concerning that new tactic, well, I think it's entirely plausible that Odysseus already had the broad outlines of his wooden horse scheme up his sleeve and well-conceived years before Agamemnon finally agreed to implement Odysseus's plan. A plan to defeat Troy, emphatically not based on honorable combat between champions, but instead based upon deception, sleight of hand, and upon one massively large and convincingly delivered lie. But folks, here's the thing. If Odysseus had have brought his wooden horse scheme forward during the early, the middle, or even the late years of the Trojan War, well, Achilles would have summarily shouted it down. Because as far as men like Achilles were concerned, the only honorable way to win a war was by looking your honorable opponent dead in the eye and then beating him by force of arms on the battlefield. And the wooden horse, as far as a man like Achilles was concerned, was a coward's weapon. It was a stab in the back or a kick in the balls. And so, inside of Agamemnon's command tent, bitter words would have been exchanged. Odysseus's situational pragmatism coming frustratingly up against Achilles's precious idealism. And likely inside of those bitter words, Achilles would have said a few biting and mean-spirited things about the character of a man like Odysseus and the boss that Odysseus chose 
to support. And so, the wooden horse, it sat on the shelf, going nowhere, not being implemented as the years rolled on and on and on. And ladies and gentlemen, it was only after Achilles was dead and the Greek army was down to its final throes, if you will, that the wooden horse plan was taken off the shelf and put into action. And then, surprise, surprise, just as Odysseus would have been predicting for all of those long, frustrating, maddening years, the scheme worked brilliantly, and the city of Troy fell. It turned out that Odysseus had been right. Cunning, guile, deception, and the big lie ultimately defeated Troy, where military prowess, courage, and honor had failed. And so the war ended. Agamemnon, of course, claimed it as a great personal victory for his leadership. And Odysseus finally, finally, finally was free to once again be his own man and no longer the Agamemnon whisperer. So that, folks, that's my hypothesis. But it is just a hypothesis, entirely playful and entirely unprovable. Folks, whatever happened between Achilles and Odysseus, if something even happened, well, now, nearly 2,500 years after the fact, we're never likely to know what it was. Which leaves Demodocus's story to the Phaeacians of that famous quarrel known throughout the world enticingly unexplained. And that, I think, well, that's a pretty good place to wrap up this particular episode of Odyssey the Podcast. So, before the next episode of Odyssey the Podcast, you have to make a personal decision on whether or not you intend and wish and desire to support our ongoing Odyssey travels together. And folks, I'm really hoping that you do. And if you want to, well, then the way to do so is through either a one-time donation to the project or through a short personal and hopefully affirming note to me. Both would be most appreciated. Either way, I promise if you send me some cash or if you send me a note, I'll do my level best to send a personal note back to you thanking you. So simply go to odysseythepodcast.com and then I can promise you and assure you that five minutes from now, well, you're going to feel really, really good about yourself for having sent me the donation or the note, and you will have made a real difference in the life of this particular 21st century Demodocus. And now I will say goodbye. But may the gods, the fates, the muses, and deadly destiny bless and reward your generosity. Have an awesome day, folks. And I will talk to you again soon in episode number 12.